0: This is Wesley Huff. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. As one of the ways I've been trying to navigate the slowdown of my regular speaking schedule over the last few months, with everything going on in the world, I've started doing a semi-regular live Q&A on my public Facebook page. I've been fielding questions about the Christian worldview— The people have been asking me live and trying to provide credible answers to those curious questions as they come in. And what you're about to hear on this week's edition of the AC podcast is a recording of the second live Ask Me Anything session that I did. And in this one in particular, I was asked questions on a variety of subjects that included the moral argument for the existence of God, as opposed to Bible contradiction, and the rationality of miracles, along with many others. So I hope this is helpful, informative, and gives you confidence for the reason for the hope that you have. Welcome to my Monday Q&A slash ask me anything type thing. I know this is the second one that I've done in a row, Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, this is going to be a regular thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to be a regular thing, and basically, I've been getting a lot of response and feedback, so I'm going to keep going uh, until I run out of time or something. So other than that, let's jump into this, because I've gotten a couple questions already in my Facebook inbox, so let's jump into that. So question one says, uh, hey Wes, what is the moral argument for the existence of God and how do I explain that? So let me start off by saying that there are multiple iterations for what we call a moral argument. And the one that I think I would prescribe to consists of getting to a necessary rational source. So basically, uh, what I'm going to do is articulate uh, something that comes from an individual named Linda Zagzowski. Zagzabsk, I think that's how you say it in her book, Does, Ethical, Does Ethics Need God? And basically, the breakdown of it is that we're trying to get to a necessary rational source. And we're going to try to do that from the moral ontology itself of moral realism. So let me try to break that down in a way that is hopefully more understandable. And if it's still too convoluted, at the end of all this, then feel free to just ignore this section. But first, I think it's important to understand that morality is a rational enterprise and uh, it's being explored within the confines of rational thought. Second, uh, moral, moral realism is true in that moral facts exist. And the third, moral problems and disagreements among humans are too many depending on where you are or where you find yourself, uh, that sort of thing, um, what century it is. Uh, basically the fact that people disagree on all sorts of ethical conclusions and those disparities are too much to conclude that morality can be grounded in simply human rationality. Fourth, Is the idea that moral facts and duties are grounded in a necessary rational source? So, following from the reality and truth of moral realism, there then needs to be necessary a necessary source for those things to be grounded in. And the fifth fact is uh, that that source is what we call God. And in order for that source to be rational, it must be sentient in nature, and therefore the moral law giver. So. To um, slow down and back up, if moral realism is true, that morality exists and it exists whether I'm here or not, basically when I die, uh, murder doesn't stop becoming wrong. Uh, uh, mo- it's still morally wrong outside of my personal experience and existence. If that's true, then uh, uh, these are moral prescriptions and obligations that are rational and discussed, understood, and obeyed by rational sentient agents, i.e. you and me, then it is logically impossible for them to be grounded in a natural source. So when a Christian says that morals find their foundation in the character and nature of God, we're not just arbitrarily stating that fact. That conclusion comes from what would necessarily follow from the actuality of moral realism. God is the necessary Rational source. So, the Christian understanding philosophy for what we call the moral argument is both grounding for the objective good and bad, as well as making an argument that there needs to be a necessary rational source for said standards to begin with, and is therefore a coherent argument for the existence existence of God. So, actually. Uh, let me pull up a a couple of quotes here. Um, So this is one I use when I I give my talk on the problem of pain and suffering. And it's from a guy named Michael Ruse, who's actually a fellow Canadian. And he's currently a a professor of philosophy and science at Florida State University. And in uh, 2020, 2010, easier for me to say, article, he said this. He said, morality is just a matter of emotions, just like liking ice cream and sex and hating toothaches and and marking students' papers. But it is and has to be a funny kind of emotion. It has to pretend that it is not that at all. If we thought that morality was no more than liking or not liking spinach, then pretty quickly it would break down. So morality has to come across as something that is more than emotion. It has to appear to be objective, even though it is subjective. He actually says, even though the reality is that it is subjective. So in other words, Michael Ruse acknowledges that moral realism sure looks like it's true, but even though it looks like it's true, it can't be. But the implications of acting like it's not true are too problematic. So despite all rationality and sensibility of moral realism, we need to pretend like it's not, we need to pretend like it's true either way, even though it's not. It reminds me kind of like when Richard Dawkins was talking with Steven Weinberg at an event uh, in Texas, and he said that the universe appears to be fine-tuned, but because we know that it isn't fine-tuned, then we can dismiss that as just uh, the appearance of such. So what the, which is silly, what the moral argument for Christian points out is that moral subjectivity in any way starts to break down really quick without a necessary rational source outside of the natural world. Okay, I I hope that made sense. But for the moment, let's look at another one for the sake of the people who didn't understand that. This says, John, Mark and John appear to be giving different times of the crucifixion of Jesus. How is that not a contradiction? Right? So this is a really good question. First, I think it's important to define what we mean when we use the word contradiction because a lot of people, even very smart people, use this word incorrectly. So first, a contradiction is something that implies both the truth and the falsity of something. So in other words, it breaks the rule of what's called the the, um, logical rule of non-contradiction. So the logical rule of non-contradiction states that A cannot be A at the exact same time. So in other words, I can't be a married bachelor. Those two things are mutually exclusive to one another. So when we're looking at examples in the Bible that are often labeled as contradictions— we need to make sure that they are indeed contradictions and not just differentiations in detail or polarity in particulars. God love those alliterations. So the person asking this question is right in one sense. The Synoptic Gospels, that being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, specifically Mark, but but you can include all the others, uh, they all agree on the fact when Jesus died, this seem to disagree with John. So according to Mark 15, Jesus died at the third hour, which would be approximately 9 a.m. And then darkness covered the land at the sixth hour, which is 12 p.m. And then Jesus died on the ninth hour, or uh, that approximately computes to 3 p.m. But John in chapter 19, verse 14 says that Jesus was still before Pilate at the sixth hour. So how do we square those facts? So there are two explanations for this. The first is that the Synoptic Gospels are using the Jewish system of timekeeping where the day starts at 6 a.m. And then John is using the Roman system of timekeeping where the day starts at 12 a.m. And if you um, compensate for that, then they match up. Now I'm sympathetic to this explanation and I think it accounts for a number of details. Although I know some do raise questions as to how that fits in with the chronology of the synoptics exactly. But there's a scholar named Craig Blomberg in his work, uh, The the Historical Reliability of the Gospels, and he proposes that this type of critique is actually imposing modern, precise timekeeping assumptions on ancient cultures, and that both Mark and John are estimating and speaking of time in quarters. And that when uh, taking in ancient understandings of time, both would be understood uh, in their culture to be claiming a rough estimate uh, around midday, both the the John and Mark passage. And I think this is totally reasonable. I mean, we have an incredible ability to measure time and have that accessible. I mean, right here, I have uh, two computers. uh, I have my iPhone, and then I have my watch. And all are accessible to telling me the accurate time. And that's a relatively modern luxury. So ancient cultures weren't necessarily as concerned with precise timing. In fact, two scholars, a guy named James um, Mattinger, uh, who's a historian, and J.B. Burry, who's a classicist, basically say that when you see labels in ancient texts, like the sixth hour, you really have about a three hour window Uh, that that event could have fit. And probably it's better uh, as a description of the time of day, like using a morning or afternoon or evening. And this has been pointed out when we see, particularly in the Gospels and Acts, how it uses descriptions like the third or the sixth or the ninth hour to describe stuff. And this is what Bloomberg, uh, who I mentioned before, says when he points out that, Mark's third hour could realistically be anywhere between 9 a.m. and noon, and John's use of about the sixth hour uh, in the mind of the ancient reader could have been understood as sometime before midday. And I think this also makes sense. I mean, I've used both the disparity between Jewish timekeeping and Roman timekeeping. Excuse me along with pointing out that exact times are a modern thing as explanations in the past when this question has come up. And I think either are entirely plausible and totally reasonable as uh, explanations. Um, So here's the wrap-up to that particular question. For the person who's asking, A, this is not a contradiction. Mark is not saying that uh, things took place at 9 a.m. and then John is saying that things did not take place at 9 a.m. That would be a contradiction outright. Instead, we need to make sure we're not anachronistically reading our modern understandings of things like time into the text of an ancient document. When we understand that the Synoptic Gospels and John had particular audiences, and Mark, for example, having a Jewish audience, and so he uses the common Jewish understanding of marking time... Uh, and then John having a more Gentile audience and so therefore uses the Gentile timekeeping practice, that totally makes sense. Or if we compare it to the other classical literature and see that impreciseness of time Uh, particularly time measurement, was the norm and that what we see could easily be seen as Mark rounding down to the third hour and John rounding up to the sixth hour, then we start to read the Gospels in the way that they were meant to be understood. So the question is about Mark and John appearing to be giving different times. And at face value, um, it does appear that way. But When we start to dig into the plausible explanations as to why that is, not only would they not be contradictions, even if there was this type of disparity, but the differentiation in detail is easily understood when we read an ancient document, not through the lens of modern thinking, but through the lens of ancient understanding. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, everyone. This is Andy Steiger. I wanted to let you know that the 10th annual Apologetics Canada conference was a great success and that the conference recordings are now available. The recordings not only have all the sessions from the conference, including all the breakout sessions, but some bonus material as well. We have included a special class that Daryl Bach taught for us and Wesley Huff about how we got the Bible and can we trust the Bible. To purchase and download the recordings, go to Apologics Canada. Com. And now, back to the podcast. Here's a third question. I've heard your personal testimony in the past, and I know you believe uh, you have experienced a miraculous healing. How do you understand miracles, and how can anyone believe in them when individuals like Hume has shown them to be irrational? So I won't go into my testimony right now. That's a video for another day. And, I mean, you can find descriptions of that story elsewhere um, in other videos. But let me address this second part, the asserts that Hume has shown miracles to be irrational. Now, for those of you who don't know, David Hume was a Scottish philosopher in the Enlightenment period. So we're talking like 18th century, I think. And Hume came up with this argument against miracles specifically. And here is my basic beef with Hume. His arguments against the probability of miracles has a fundamental flaw in the fact that Hume, I don't think understood probability very well. Basically, Hume believed that there is essentially consistent evidence of uh, completely universal laws in the universe that are never broken. But in order to make that case, he had to ignore the fact that there are claims all the time of miracles taking place. So what he essentially does was he was making an assumption about human experience uh, that rendered miracles improbable. Uh, There were other components to his argument, but, but that was basically the foundation of it. The other problem I find is that Hume defined miracles as violations of universal laws. And since he believed that universal laws were universal, he was effectively defining miracles as something that couldn't happen and then concluding that on that basis, they couldn't happen, which is begging the question just slightly. So I guess, I mean, that requires me to answer what are miracles then. Basically... A miracle is an extraordinary act of God. So extraordinary literally meaning that its components define themselves as extra, meaning out of in Latin, and orzo, meaning um, arrangement. So etymologically that is the the breakdown in the meaning of the components of words itself. That's what that etymologically means. Literally this word means outside of the normal course of events. That that's what I'm talking about. And the word that we translate as miracle in the Bible, among other words used in the Greek is, uh, the first word is dunamis, uh, meaning power or might or strength or mighty works. And the, the, the other one is semion, which literally means what it sounds like signs. Um, So as a Christian, I believe that God sustains the universe by his power. So we could describe it by saying that the laws of nature uh, and the way that God normally is upholding the world, and he does that in an incredibly consistent and natural way. And that's what we discover when we do things like scientific inquiry and study within the natural sciences. We study the natural order of things. But God being God is by no means limited in his ability to sustain the world in an extraordinary way for his own purpose, if he so wishes to do so. So we can see through things like the fine tuning of the universe, among other things, that the universe almost always obeys the laws of science. I don't think that science has proved that absolutely 100% of the time those laws are followed and have to be followed. And and I don't think we can establish that on the basis of science, because if for no other reason, science depends on the reproducibility of things. And by definition, miracles are unreproducible. So hopefully from that, you can see why I think Hume is incorrect. And I'm not alone here. In fact, there's a great explanation of all this in Ian Hutchinson's book called Can Scientists Believe in Miracles? Um, It's a great resource. And Hutchinson is a legitimate scientist. He teaches nuclear engineering at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He goes into that in further detail. So uh, he's a good one to follow up on all of the details that I missed or didn't totally make sense on. Okay. Okay. I don't know if I answered that question properly. So, but let, let's do one more question. Where did the chapters and verses in the Bible come from? <laughs> it's a good one. The answer to this is that both chapters and verses are relatively modern. They were, And we know that the original books of the Bible had no chapter and verse divisions. We created those things to help us do things like read and memorize and reference the text itself. And so chapter divisions appear first and then start to appear in manuscripts uh, between the 10th and 13th centuries. And in Christian manuscripts, the more established chapter divisions pop up at the beginning of the 13th century in the Latin Vulgate. And then uh, they're transcribed into later translations in and around the 16th century. Verses, on the other hand, come later. And those find their origin in a guy named Robert Stephanus. And the story goes that he came up with a lot of the verse divisions in a carriage ride from Paris to Lyon's uh, to meet the printer's deadline. And the reason some verse divisions don't quite make sense is because the ride was bumpy. A professor of mine once said that uh, even if that story is not true, uh it's, it's good. It's a good story. So we should treat it as if it's true. Anyways, I don't know how that works morally, but it is a fun story. Now we should mention, just as a side note, the Jewish divisions in the Hebrew Bible differ at various points. Uh, I may, or may not be right on this, but I'm pretty sure that the Psalms are a verse or two off in the the Christian text versus the Jewish text. And some of the Jewish manuscripts from the Middle Ages were divided into sections marked by letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So there's evidence of uh, these. I believe they're called um, parashat, uh, and, and they're found in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And for anyone who cares... Random fact: There are nine hundred and twenty-nine chapters in the Old Testament, and six hundred and twenty chapters, and seven thousand nine hundred fifty-seven verses in the New Testament. I have no idea how many verses there are in the Old Testament. I'm sure you could Google it uh, if you were really that interested. Um, I know there's not many questions, but I'm ha- It's not letting me see the the questions that people are asking on the Facebook link itself Uh, i'm getting inboxes but hopefully i can fix that for next time uh and at a certain point i like to pair this with my instagram and do like an instagram live and a facebook uh live at the exact same time um have my like phone off to the side some some kind of thing uh but otherwise there's all the questions i received um Like I said, this doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be doing this every week, but I have the time at the moment for now, and so uh, I'm going to continue doing them. They seem to be getting a lot of traction afterwards, even though not necessarily a whole lot of views, although we have about a half a dozen people watching um, right now uh, in in the grand scheme of things. So other than that, uh, stay safe. Thanks so much for watching. Hope this was helpful, not too convoluted. I know I got into some of the weeds in some places, but otherwise, Thanks for listening, uh, and we'll talk to you later.